I'm Cinder Niemela. Welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Hello, my guest today is Jody Kachaisi. In 2006, Jody and her husband Chris were hiking Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. Her husband Chris tragically lost his life in a rock slide. In a talk that is heartbreaking, courageous, and inspiring, Jody shares her hard earned wisdom about life and her journey through grief and loss. Jody's candid approach to loss and grief something that affects us all is as relatable as it is insightful. Most powerfully, she encourages us to shift how we approach loss and grief. Jody shows us how to navigate this new experience that loss and grief is, while also living a new normal. Jody is a licensed psychologist, consultant, and coach living and practicing in Boston. She coaches and conducts trainings for leaders, professionals, and clinicians on how to support those who are grieving and integrate psychological concepts into their work. Jody, welcome to the call. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Would you start by telling us your story? Sure. So my story started back in 2006 when my husband um, was killed tragically in a rock slide. And I guess before I, I really get into that, um, just to share a little bit about, you know, our life and, and who we were, you know, Chris and I met in college. And, you know, when when he first started to express interest in me, um, I was pretty floored. I mean, he was this incredibly intelligent, um, attractive, you know, charismatic person. And we were part of the same friend group. And so that's how I met him. And, you know, for myself, you know, I had never been in a relationship before. I was always kind of an awkward person in that sense. So I had a lot of insecurity about, about who, my, who I was. And, and so when I came to college, you know, I was just really starting to begin to figure out who I was in, in an academic sense and, you know, on a personal level. But this idea that, um, about having a relationship with something I was, you know, just didn't really know if it would happen. And then here's this person who just felt so out of my league um, coming to me and, and, you know, wanting to pursue something. And in fact, one of the things I, I remember very vividly is the very first time he really expressed his feelings for me. I think I spent probably a good hour um, trying to convince him that that was, he needed something else, you know, something other than, than me. And he, in his very, um, genuine way was sat there patiently listening to me talk for that time and when I kind of finally paused he looked at me and he said are you done and I said yes and then he said this is my choice um, and choice I get to make and I'm choosing you we had six years of just an incredible relationship he just got me in a way that nobody ever had and we you know we shared so many interests and had a lot of adventures together. And, you know, Chris was this person that just, he just knew at a very young age to embrace life and loved trying to get, you know, the most out of all of our experiences and, and really taught me that. 
And so the trip that we were on um, where he died, we were hiking Mount Kilimanjaro. And it had been a trip that he'd wanted to do for uh, many years. And we got the opportunity to go with a group um, from a mountain club in Colorado, which, which is where we were living. And the days that we were on the mountain together, like he was just in his element. And I remember, you know, probably about 20 minutes before um, the rock slide, which is um, what happened and, and how he died. Uh, we had stopped as a group when we were on our final ascent. So we had a couple of hours of hiking and we would um, reach the summit and get into the crater of the mountain. And we stopped as a group to just, you know, get some water and, and you know, take a little break. And um, I was standing next to him and, and, you know, he just had this this look on his face. He was beaming and smiling and you could just tell he was he was exactly where he needed to be. And then it was 15 minutes later where we heard the first crack of the, the rock breaking and, and the slide happened. And then um, he ended up falling into a crevasse and the one, our leader in the group was the one who ultimately went and found him and then had to come back up and, and tell me um, that he was gone. So that moment was the beginning of, I guess, my journey with, with grief. And so sudden, we talked yeah. about different levels of grief. Things can happen very suddenly, and then things yeah. can happen more slowly. I still think back on it, and I, I still can't imagine in some ways. Like, I just remember that moment felt so surreal. And, you know, I, I had to wait you know, on the side um, of that mountain while we were just kind of waiting to see if there was going to be more of a side. And, and our group leader was who was a trained mountaineer, you know, and knew, knew the elements was, was wonderful in terms of kind of directing us so we could all be safe. But, you know, waiting to be able to hear him not only find Chris, because I couldn't see him from where I was at. And then when I saw him kind of start to come back up in that moment, I knew um, what he was going to tell me. It's this moment where you just, you feel like you're watching it from above and it just doesn't feel real. Mm -hmm. Did other people also die in that rock slide? Yeah, the group we were with was, we had 15 and then we had a whole team of porters that were helping us with the climb and, you know, bringing up supplies. And two of our porters um, died that day. And then there was another um, mountain climbing group um, from the East Coast that was up a little bit further up the slope. Um, and so they had one of their climbers um, die and two or, two or three of their porters died that day. So it was, I think there was five or six people total um, that lost their life that day. Oh my God, what a tragedy. Yeah. What did you do after that? The immediate after is I had to hike down the mountain. You know, I had to get up and walk about two or three days worth of, of our hike down to the place where um, they could actually get a car in and, and transport people out. So um, I had to hike down and then I stayed in Africa for about five days um, waiting until the um, Tanzanian government released Chris's body because I wasn't going to fly back without him. And then I came back to Seattle area, which is where we were both from just started to figure out how to navigate the pieces. I took a semester off of school because I was in graduate school for um, my PhD in psychology. And so I took the next semester off and 
Chris's family and my family were in the Seattle area. So I spent the, the spring living with my um, brother and his wife. And it was, you know, a choice I made because I just needed to be around people who could support me. And I also, I needed to be around people who had also lost him. Um, so being around his family and his parents was really important. Um, and it was, it was ended up being a, a wonderful choice to make and to not try to just jump back in, which I think a lot of people do, you know, they, they try to just jump back into their life as a way of distracting. And sometimes because I think they feel like they have to, and, um, sometimes that's, that's a really hard thing to do because you, it's hard to, to navigate this new experience, um, that, that grief is, and also try to, to live your life, um, in the way it used to be kind of the old normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, when I was going through it, I could not imagine working. I was so grateful that I didn't have to (laughs) drive into work every day. I couldn't imagine pretending or just performing at the the level that I was used to. So this experience, you were, you were already in graduate school and it inspired you to study more about the process of grief. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I, when I was started off in graduate school, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a therapist and I, I had originally wanted to focus more on um, marriage and family after all of this. And I came back to school and I really, you know, being the person looking for, support I, I found that at least my exposure to to my field like that as a field we didn't quite get it I was surrounded by clinicians and mental health people you know and I found myself being surprised that I would encounter these interactions that just felt so awkward at times and in some ways really unhelpful even though the intentions were really you know really well-meaning I think that at that time it started to grow in my mind that I'm getting through this. I just didn't want other people to have to encounter the same, you know, kind of awkward, uncomfortable moments that I did. I wanted to see clients who were grieving. There were some people, my advisors and and supervisors, you know, were very cautious about, about that, but it felt really important for me to be able to kind of offer that that space for someone. And then I started to think about my research. And so I was finishing up my thesis and I was starting to think about what my dissertation was going to be in. And it just made sense to kind of have it be in the field of, of grief and loss. And it ended up being particularly looking at the experience of widows, even though it was a really difficult um, topic. Many people who do dissertations like have a lot of struggle with the process that I had this added layer of every time I, you know, I was in it, I was also reconciling my own experience and, and trying to figure out how to use that and, and also how to not let it get in the way. Yeah, it was more than an intellectual exercise. Yeah, very much. And it's, you know, sometimes I think in the work that I do and have continued to do, it is that balance of, of trying to have the intellectual piece that I know um, and I know because of my study, I know because of the research I've done, but I also know because of my personal experience. And so having that intellectual piece and then also using and connecting to the emotional piece. Mm-hmm. Your dissertation question was such an interesting one. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit more about where you landed in, in terms of your research. 
So the question was to look at how widows begin to navigate. Like, what are the things that kind of push them in a direction of of getting support? You know, I think for me, the question really came because I thought back about, well, how did I decide what I did? Like, what was it that was kind of shaping that? And I wanted to see, you know, is that that other people's experiences too? And I also found that when I looked at the literature that was out already, that a lot of it talked about it as though the choice had already been made, um, you know, sort of from the, here's all the options that people have, here's what works, here's what doesn't. But it didn't ever really talk about why would somebody choose one or the other. So that was where the question came from. I found that for the people I was able to speak with, their their experience and, and how they found the things that worked for them were pretty similar to how I found the things that, were, that worked for me. The themes that really came out of it was that once they were able to trust their inner voice um, and listen to what that gut feeling was telling them to do, that they felt like they were able to move through their grief with a little bit more ease. Um, and that they also found that, you know, they, they sought out advice and guidance from people that they trusted. But it was also the flip side of that is that unsolicited advice wasn't really helpful. You know, so they were going to someone to say, here's my question. What do you think I should do here? That was really helpful. But when people were coming to them saying, you should do X or you shouldn't do X, that Mm -hmm. that felt um, pretty unhelpful. And it sometimes um, it, it led to them, you know, feeling very distressed. Hmm. Interesting. And how long after loss did people start listening to their inner voice? It really varied. I talked to some people that, you know, it kind of seemed like from day one, they they just really were grounded in, in listening to that. It kind of matched who they were. They were just those people that had kind of navigated their life that way. Mm. Um, and then whereas others, you know, it took them a while. It took them going through some experiences where they, they did kind of listen to the the opinions or, or the suggestions of others and they would go through it and then they realize that this doesn't fit and they sort of wrestle with that and then ultimately they kind of they came to the conclusion of I'm just going to do what what I think I should do here and when they did that the really wonderful thing was that they would describe those first moments of doing that whatever that thing was and they would just feel so much more relief and it was like that moment of just trusting themselves and, and listening to that voice and then, and then following through on what that voice was telling them, the relief set in. And they, didn't, they weren't magically fixed. I mean, their grief wasn't gone, but they felt like they had some groundedness in, in how they were navigating their grief. Did that resonate with you as well? It did a lot. I mean, I think for me, I don't know if it was just the background that I was already starting to have. I decided pretty early on after Chris died that I was going to really approach my grief um, with as much authenticity as I could. You know, I, I made some pretty hard decisions early on about creating space, you know, from certain individuals in my life where it just didn't feel comforting and really, you know, giving myself permission to seek out the things that were um, providing that comfort and that, that space. I knew that feeling that they were describing because when I would make that choice to stay away from something or from a situation or from someone, you know, the moment that decision was made that like, I'm going to give myself that permission, the relief that I felt. One of the things I did is I sought out a support group through a a hospice that was near me and going to that was something that 
I wondered if it would be a helpful thing to be in a room with other people who also were wrestling with so much pain. But after the first session, I walked out of that uh, group just feeling like this is where I need to be. And again, that sense of relief and, and sense of alignment was really powerful. Hmm. You mentioned grief and loss. Could you talk a little bit about the distinctions between the two? Sure. I guess in my understanding, grief is the emotion that we're going to feel. It's, it's all of the, the mixture of emotions that we're experiencing. It's an experience. Loss to me feels like a little bit more of the way in which we describe the process. You know, I think loss is something that we experience in a lot of different ways. It, it doesn't just have to be a loss through death. You know, I think we experience loss when we lose things that are we are invested in or that are important to us. I do trainings for um, different professional groups and, and talk about how loss is letting go of a business that you started. It's letting go of your role in a professional setting and moving on to something else. To me, I think of loss as, as the process we go through. I think of grief as the feelings that come with it. And they're a part of that process, but they're more of the emotions that, that we experience when we're, when we're navigating that. And loss can be a choice that we make or happen to us. Yeah. You know, even when we make a, a change to some, in something in our life, whether it's we decide to move or we decide to take on a new job or, you know, we decide to, to give up something that we're doing on some level, there's an element of loss to that because with any change, we, we will experience a loss on some part. It's something that we will have to acknowledge and then also kind of learn how to build into our life and tolerate because a lot of times when we're making those changes, like we're not only leaving things that are only bad or things that are, you know, that we don't like, we're often leaving components or things that were serving us or that we enjoyed or that were meaningful to us in some way. And we're moving away from them to something else that we're, we are seeing as you know, more valuable or, or higher priority or more important. Mm-hmm. And with death, you know, loss is not our choice. It's happened. And we're experiencing all of them moving forward and moving towards something else. And that something else is a life without this person, at least in the physical form. Yes. How does this experience of grief and, and loss impact us personally? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think it impacts us at every layer. It impacts us in a professional way. If we've lost something that's valuable to us, especially if we're, we've lost a person, we may change the way that we see the world. It may change our perspectives. It may change our priorities might have a person who has been very dedicated and almost sort of balanced the majority of their time to their professional career and then they have a significant loss and they decide maybe that's not the best way to or the right balance for how I'm spending my time. Maybe I need to spend some of my time, more of my time in this other area or with this with my family or with these other people. So I think it changes that. I think it can um, change our capacity for feeling. You know, I talk a lot with clients, especially if they're coming in and they're really wrestling with one of their first major losses of their life. The intensity of those emotions can be really surprising and overwhelming. And our capacity for emotion has to increase to account for that. And so going forward, a lot of times what I've seen is that people's capacity for, for emotion 
and their their understanding of what um, the intensity of what emotions can be is influenced. And that's sometimes a good thing too. You know, I think our appreciation for other people, things in our lives can also be increased after Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of a loss. Um, I think our expression of sadness as well as joy also increases once that capacity um, increases. And Mm -hmm. that can be a really powerful and I think meaningful thing for people. And then I think, you know, grief impacts or loss impacts our life because it's changed our life. You know, if it's a loss of a person, you know, the role that they've played in our life, we have to adapt to them not being there to be able to play that role. If it's a loss, you know, through another way, whether it's, you know, our own um, capacity, like our physical or cognitive capacity, or if it's a loss through a choice that we're making, the the day-to-day workings of our lives are going to change. And Mm -hmm. so we have to adapt to that. And so it changes us that way too. Mm. For the business leader who (laughs) is experiencing a lot of change in the business, let's take the business perspective first maybe the competitive landscape has changed. And so they've had to either downsize or right size or add more people. How does that impact the people, not only the leader, but the people in the organization? It impacts the leader in the sense that they have to acknowledge it first and foremost. I mean, I think when we're, when we're navigating loss or our grief, we have to accept that our reality is changing. So I think for the business leader, being able to get to a place where they can say, this is, this is happening, you know, whether it's I'm having to downsize or we're going to have to grow and, and, you know, whatever the, the emotions that come with that, that's sort of the next step. But the first step is being able to, to acknowledge and accept that the change is, is present. For the leader themselves, it's figuring out what they'll need to do, you know, and, and really breaking that down and into doable steps. And, and I, I think even, you know, when I think back to my experience, you know, those, especially early on, like it was deciding how am I going to make it through this day? What are the few things that I need to do today? And so really taking it day by day and step by step. And I think it's, it's the same type of process when you're the leader, you know, trying to figure out how, how to navigate or create the path forward. It's figuring out what, what needs to be done, what are the resources that are necessary to be able to do that. And then knowing, you know, sort of yourself well enough to understand your own you know, internal process, like when it comes to a business changing, like when emotions come up for leaders to be able to ask themselves, like, what is that? and be willing to just, you know, explore it a little bit for themselves. One, so that they know how to either work around it or factor it in. You know, there's sometimes people will have lost or grief responses and these strong emotions come out, but they don't come out in the obvious way. It's not like they're all of a sudden, you know, upset or crying, but they might be irritable or angry. Mm. And then part of that might be because they're struggling with having to adapt to this new normal. Or they're they're really resisting, you know, the the reality that this loss has happened, and so the more a leader can be aware of of their own, you know, internal process, be willing to ask themselves those questions of what do I think is causing this, and then I think how they help the people around them is by making the space for those kinds of questions to be asked. 
you know, mm-hmm. to recognize that if they have somebody, you know, whether it's a person on their team going through a loss that's sort of separate or whether as a team and as a group of people, they're all sort of collectively going through this change or this loss to be able to create the space for people to acknowledge that there's a, a loss happening and that they have emotions about it and have, a, have a, an opportunity to at least acknowledge the difficulty of that. Mm-hmm. The first leadership role I had and the CEO called his direct reports into you know his office and said, you all should take Friday off, go play golf, go, you know, do whatever Mm -hmm. you do because we're going to hand out pink slips and you don't want to be around for those conversations, those emotional conversations. Now that was 1990. It's been a while since then, but this may seem kind of scary for people to have their employees talk about whether it's individually or in a group setting how they feel about the change. Yeah, I I think it is. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've found over the years of just talking with different people and being in these different settings with this topic is it seems like one of the things that makes that the scariest is that the leader or, you know, the person who's opening that conversation, there's this underlying expectation that they're going to be able to fix the loss, that there's this pressure that they have to make the person feel better. That's the piece I think that makes this the scariest for us. Regardless of the type of loss, you know, especially the ones that we don't choose, fixing it isn't an option. And so if we put this go into a conversation, you know, with this an internal pressure of I've got to I've got to make this better, then it's going to make us really uncomfortable. And I think deep down somewhere, we know we can't make it better. And we don't want to confront the fact that we're going to fail at this, this internal expectation. And so I think the shift that really is important is to realize that that's not the agenda. If you're that business leader wanting to make this space, the agenda isn't to make your team or your employees feel better in that sense. It's to actually provide a place where there's empathy and a place for them to be acknowledged that this is hard. Mm-hmm. And that acknowledgement and that empathy itself um, can, in many cases, make people feel better. It's not going to make the, the situation go away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess we, we get kind of tied up in, in this unrealistic, unrealistic expectation that we have the power to make someone feel better or that we have the power to fix um, a, a person's grief or loss. Mm-hmm. And, and when we don't, I mean, and when I've done trainings with new clinicians around how to work with clients who are grieving, one of the things that I, I really try to hone in on is you cannot fix this. But your role is to be able to provide a space where this person gets to be heard. They get to um, be in a place where somebody is is able to empathize and to be supportive and to just be there with them. And that brings some comfort. Mm-hmm. But our our as a clinician, at least, our rule isn't to to make their grief go away or their their pain go away. It's to give them a, and the permission, I think, in a lot of cases, and the space to be able to feel it. And it's that feeling it, it's that processing it, that will ultimately lead to the person feeling better. 
Um, but that's not something that's in our power. And I think that's where a lot of people, especially business leaders, like when I talk to them, um, you know, I, I've done some trainings with um, pr- professional advisors, like financial advisors, and, you know, this, this scariness comes up and, and oftentimes it's what's behind it is this worry that they're going to be upset and I'm not going to be able to make them feel better. And once mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of give, the message is given to them that you don't have to, but you can be there for them. You can sit and you can listen and you can empathize. And in fact, that's really all they're going to be looking for from you anyway, because they know you can't fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think when that happens, then their comfort with the topic increases. And when their comfort with the topic increases, they're better equipped to be able to be in that role of the advisor during a tough time or be the leader you know, who's helping their team get through a tough time. Um, it's that the comfort that they have in knowing that that's my role is to be supportive and to pre- provide this space and to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm reminded of what you said earlier in this conversation is that un- unsolicited advice right. is not helpful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not. And we have such good intentions. You know, we just want people to, we want people to feel better. And we believe that if we can just give them something that will, uh, some direction to do that, um, that it will help. And in the unsolicited stuff, you know, just for so many people, it's, it's one coming at a time that's often unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, only when that happens, the nature of being unsolicited is that you know, they're not ready for it. And two, it's coming often from the standpoint of based on that person's perspective, this is what you should do. Mm-hmm. And the, the people's reaction to grief and, and their own, you know, process and what it ends up being, it's really unique to them. And so, you know, a lot of what I try to do with the work that I do is empower people to be willing to explore and create their path through this, learn what it, what it means for them to navigate their loss. And in doing that, you know, we kind of take out the shoulds. We take out the things that you're supposed to do. And it's more about what do you think would make sense for you to do? What does your internal voice tell you that might be helpful? Let's look at ways that you can just try those things and then see how it feels and and see what your reaction is. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of small businesses, particularly the entrepreneurial startups that are moving Mm -hmm. so quickly, the mm-hmm. thought of taking yeah. time to pause and and have these kinds of group discussions or individual discussions, what are some signs that a pause could be uh, very beneficial for people? That's a good question. The things that immediately jump to mind are when you start to notice a more pervasive tension. One of the symptoms of grief for a lot of people is a sense of impatience and irritability in a work environment or a team. Again, especially if at one point the team seemed to have a pretty good cohesive, you know, dynamic to it, and then you have a change that's that's being, you know, sort of in, put into place, and then you start to notice people just having a lot less patience with each other. There's a lot more of just that tension kept present in the air, a lot more um, frustrations. And if that's something that, that you're starting to see more days than not, that would be a good indicator to kind of take that pause. When you're implementing any major change, you know, or whether that's 
we've got to downsize or, you know, we're going to be expanding and we're going to add in all of this new stuff, which is going to throw everything sort of out of what you're the familiar, then to anticipate that the pause has to be there as a part of that process. So you, you can even, in some ways, with these kind of chosen losses, um, anticipate the, the need for that and, and build it into the process to just give people time to digest. What are the conversations around letting people just sort of express their their worries or their concerns, um, or whether it's just to kind of give them an opportunity to ask questions about what the new normal is going to be. You know, those are, I think, are, would be two types of uses for that pause that could really help people just feel heard and also help them process what they're about to encounter or what the change is bringing on. Those are really good examples. As I reflect on my own process of grieving, there comes a time when I felt isolated. I knew what I was thinking, but I had lost touch with some of the most important people in my life. And I think uh, by bringing together everyone who's going through, whether it's a team or a small organization, the people who are going through change, one exercise we used to do was to um, have everybody list all of the changes that they were doing and put Mm -hmm. it up on a board. So everyone could see that there were personal and professional changes going on for everyone. And it wasn't just one, it was multiple. (laughs) It's like, oh my, my son went to college (laughs) or I just had a baby or my partner and I just broke up. There were so many changes. I think as a culture, we we sort of reinforce this idea that we can compartmentalize and most, most of us are pretty good at it. You know, we can compartmentalize a lot of stuff. But in reality, we're, you've got one person going through all of these different things, kind of bouncing back and forth between whether it's their relationship or what's going on in their family with, you know, their kids or their spouse and then what's going on at work. And they are that living it all. And so to be able to acknowledge, like, this is why you might be <laughs> frustrated or impatient is because look at your list of losses. <laughs> mm-hmm. Look at your list of changes and to just normalize that. And then I do think, especially in like the, the professional setting, when we can also understand maybe what that somebody is else is going through something, you know, we might be seeing their level of impatience, you know, increase we don't know that background story. We don't know that they're going through a breakup or we don't know that they're going through, you know, their kids going off to college, they're dealing with that. Then all we're seeing is the immediate reaction and we don't have a way of making sense of it. And when we can then put it into context, you know, people tend to be a lot more compassionate and and patient and understanding when they know the overall context of what somebody's wrestling with. Mm. But it's, it's, it's a tough thing because I think especially in our business world, like we're taught to kind of keep those personal things separate. And so I think a lot of people don't necessarily want to or feel comfortable bringing that stuff in. And it's not that they have to come in and, you know, sort of lay everything out and expect that everyone's going to be their confidant or their therapist. But to be able to say, like, here's all the changes I'm going through or here's one major one. So that's going to in- probably going to have an impact on me. Some days might be a little bit tougher for me. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about other skills as a, as a leader is thinking about what are the mm-hmm. skills that I personally want to enhance or evolve and what are the yeah. skills that I'm evolving with my team. And I've picked up from this conversation that reflection, self-reflection mm-hmm. is so important, not only individually, yeah. but collectively as a team. Mm-hmm resilience, like we talk about building agile teams, how do you, how yeah. do you actually do that? 
Oh, that's a really good question. In my clinical work, I guess I'll speak from, because I think that's the place where I feel like I'm most intentional about trying to help people cultivate resilience. The things that I tend to focus on is helping people reflect on their strengths, looking at tough situations that they're encountering, having them not only think about, you know, how they reacted to them, but then also really trying to point out sometimes for them, like, here's what strength it took to be able to do that thing. Or here's a skill that you demonstrated or that you learned from that experience. Because the more we can point back to things that are our strengths or skills, the more we can empower people to believe that they can get through things, that's what resilience is. It's the belief that you can get through it. It's not that you're not going to have the pain that might come with some of this stuff, but it's the belief that you can you can make it to the other side of it. Mm. And so I think that the way we cultivate that is by helping people see what it is they have done and connect with this, the strengths and, that they have, be able to label that. And also I think in, in some senses, you know, in the role that I've, I play, and then I think you know, just thinking about the business leader, like to have someone else see that in you, Mm -hmm. to be able to point out and reflect that back to you. Like, this is something that I saw. This is a strength that I can see in you. And I think that's going to serve you really well going forward in this. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people need to hear that. It's that reassurance. It's easier for them to give themselves the permission to believe it. Mm. And then this compassion, when we do that as as a group, then we cultivate compassion for each other. Yeah, yeah, we do. And compassion, you know, I I think is just something that is, it's so foundational to, to any of the stuff we're talking about, you know, whether it's compassion for those around us who are in the struggle with us or are struggling, and then it's compassion for ourselves, for, for many people who are going through difficult things, like it's easy to fall into that that inner dialogue of I should be feeling X or I should be able to do this, you know, in a certain way, or really just getting frustrated with themselves that they're they're not able to act in the way that they want to. To be able to to have that compassion for ourselves and be like, you know what? I'm doing the best I can. Especially when there's, you know, somebody is going through a loss. You know, like you were talking about earlier, like the idea of going back to work and and trying to be in, you know, your day-to-day life, you're not going to be at full capacity. Mm-hmm. And so many people sort of put this pressure on themselves that somehow they, that that's something that they should be able to do. And and to be able to have compassion and be like, it's okay that today I'm, I, I might be playing like I'm playing injured. Just getting to work or just getting to, to do those few things on my list, that is me succeeding today given everything that's going on and, and that my mind and my body are trying to, to navigate. Hmm. It sounds like to me that one of the transitions that people make as they go through grief and uh, come out on the other side, that one of the mindset shifts that they have is that they have more com- self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do. I think it is. And I think that is tied into that theme that I saw in, in the research that I did that, that trusting the instinct and that and trusting ourselves to kind of listen to, to that voice when it's saying, you know, you don't need to do this, or you don't have the energy to do this. And mm-hmm. it's okay, or you, you might be better served doing this other thing. And that that's okay, even though it might be going against somebody else's wishes for you. In order to listen to our voice, we have to have that compassion. Because sometimes that voice tells us things that we don't necessarily want to hear. 
you know, we don't always want to hear that I don't have the energy to do this today or that this is going to be hard for me or that, you know, I, I need to go against what somebody else that I trust and, and care for is telling me to do. And when we listen to that voice, we're also kind of having to have compassion for the fact that we aren't going to be able to be or perform or do the way that either our expectations have been or somebody else's expectations have been of us. Mm -hmm. So in sharing what you've learned over the last few years, not only through your own experience, but also through your studies and working with individuals and uh, leaders, What's the Uh most important advice that you have for someone listening? It's to take things one step at a time. And I think it's also, you know, in what we were just talking about, it's to be patient with yourself, to trust that inner voice. I think those are the kind of the two most important things, the trusting yourself and the one step at a time. Um, at least in my experience, when I look back at the entire thing and, and even the different phases, you know, the, the more acute, you know, right after Chris died and then in the years that followed, I think that when I followed those two themes, that it, I usually ended up finding the direction I needed to go in. They're not as as specific as, you know, do this one strategy. When I mean, we're dealing with loss, I don't know that there is that one answer that, you can give and then everybody just takes it and inserts it and then it's fine um, because the prop, their experience is, is so unique and it's, it's so layered. There's so many different factors that go into how a person responds to loss or responds to, you know, their grief. But I do think that taking it one day at a time and giving yourself permission to do that and then also being willing to, to listen to that internal voice because in many, many cases, it knows what you need. Mm-hmm. What's the habit or the mantra that a leader could hold on to to remember that? Well, I'll share with you mine. My mantra is something that actually came to, or I was given to me that day that Chris died. In the midst of the slide, our group was trying to find find shelter, and Chris, you know, and I were next to each other, and we were, you know, kind of moving across the slope and. His last words to me were to stay on my feet. And, and at the time, and, you know, I'm, in my head, I'm like, I'm trying. <laughs> Clearly, what, that's what I'm trying to do. But that sentiment is something that I think every day after that was just so real for me. It's a mantra that really, to me, means you got to keep going. And I think it, it echoes that sentiment of, you know, it's, it's one step at a time. And I think that's something that a leader could really, they embrace it. You know, it allows them one to slow down because if you're only taking one step at a time, you have to be thoughtful about what that stuff's going to be. We try to rush and kind of do it all in one moment and we put this pressure to maybe move faster than, than is really necessary. And when we allow ourselves to do, actually take one step at a time, with each step, we get to sort of recalibrate and, and reassess in terms of where we're at. We get to figure out if our foothold is going to be, you know, a steady one or if we need to adjust. That's a mantra that that's, has worked for me in the last 13 years. It guided me to finish my graduate school program to venture back into the world of working with grief you know, moving across the country to a whole new city and, and even to making the decision to get married again. Mm-hmm. Let's stay on your feet and keep going. Yeah. 
You mentioned that you work with organizations. If somebody wanted to contact you, can you give us a little bit of insight into the kinds of people that you work with? So at this point, I've worked with professional advisors, mostly financial advisors and kind of attorneys who are working with clients where they might be encountering clients who are dealing with loss, like a state planning attorney and that kind of thing. So usually the best way to get in touch with me at this point is um, looking me up on LinkedIn. Um, again, my last name being Kachaisi, it's pretty rare. I'm the only Jody Kachaisi out there. So it's pretty easy to find me, but I, I will come in and I've done some individual consulting where somebody has a situation where they just want to kind of talk through how to, to set up and navigate, you know, working with a client and to doing more kind of larger group presentations on here's some things to be aware of when working with grieving clients or working with clients who are just going through significant transitions. Then I also do uh, the trainings I've done is for, you know, other mental health professionals in terms of how do you kind of work with clients uh, who are going through significant transitions. Great. And I will put all of that information in the show notes. What's one thing you know now that you wish you knew earlier? I wish I had known that it was okay not to know. Mm. You know, at the beginning, I, I, you know, I was a, in my graduate program to be a, be a psychologist. And I was like, you have all of this information and these resources at your hands. Like have, there's this pressure to need to know how to go, how to do this. Um, and looking back now, like I wish that, you know, the, from day one, I had known it's okay not to know. It's not okay to, to just stop. You know, you have to explore, um, but it's okay not to know that that doesn't mean that that's, that you're stuck. Yeah, that that's important advice. Kind of keeps you humble in the moment. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think it also keeps you open to, you know, mm. learning new things. And I think if you if you know that it's, that you don't have to know, you're not afraid to ask other people. You're not afraid to explore um, because there's not this expectation that somehow those questions um, will be inappropriate or that they will be um, sort of a surprise to other people. And I think that when we're willing to explore and we're willing to kind of get other perspectives or, or look into to new or different ways that, that don't come to us naturally, that's where you know, we can really grow and we can really grow in ways that one, we never expected to grow, but also grow in ways that are really helpful and meaningful to us. Mm, that's really good advice. It also it describes very well the growth mindset, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does, which, you know, I came into the growth mindset stuff well after my experience. And it was just like, yes, this is, this is a language that totally resonates with, with, I guess, how I've been approaching things. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Jody. I really do appreciate your being on the call today and sharing your personal story and how that yeah. has transformed the way that you look at your work. I really appreciate well, thank you so much for having me. I'm Cinder oh, Yamala, you're so and welcome. you've been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.